Hello and welcome to The Doc Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mike DeLuke, and it's my mission to help you lead a happier, healthier, and more prosperous life, both personally and professionally. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Doc Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Jeremy Manuele, who is an amazing orthodontist and an all-around great guy from Las Vegas, Nevada. Jeremy has quite an interesting past. He joined the Army National Guard at 17 years old and dedicated 21 and a half years of service to his country, including an 18-month field artillery deployment to Ramadi, Iraq from 2005 to 2006. His military journey culminated in retirement as a major from a local medic unit in 2022. Jeremy and his partner, Dr. R. Cree Hamilton, practice in Las Vegas, Nevada, where they share a passion for creating beautiful smiles and improving the health and lives of their patients. He aims to strike a balance between work and family time and continues to share his expertise as a part-time orthodontics instructor at the UNLV School of Dental Medicine. In addition, Jeremy recently created the MARPI 360 online course, which is a comprehensive CE course for dentists focused on airway health and non-surgical teen and adult expansion. So with that, I would like to welcome Jeremy to the podcast. Welcome, Jeremy. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Excited to be here. Yeah, really, really excited to dive into some of these topics with you. Um, we kind of talked a little bit before this, a couple of weeks back and just kind of chatting, putting our heads together. And I just, I really enjoyed, as I said, you're just you're a good guy, good colleague. You're a thinker, which I love. Um, I, you know, it's one of the things, one of the first slides I show when I, when I lecture and, and present, it's actually on my website is it talks about the Steve Jobs quote about dogma and being dogmatic. And I just struggle so much with dogmatism and I feel like we're always learning and it's, it's just, it's our job to constantly learn and evolve and grow in our profession. And it's very clear when you speak to you that that's how you feel too. So um, I'm excited to jump into cut these topics and we're going to kind of give everybody a little bit of a preview. I'm, I'm going to get a little background and want to hear a little bit more about Jeremy's awesome story and journey to this point. And then we're going to, we're going to talk about airway uh, and, and really just kind of dig a little deeper into what you and I agree on, disagree on and kind of philosophically where our profession sits at this point on that topic. And then we'll get a little into the expansion side of things and kind of talk about, um, your course, your Marpy 360 course, which I took and loved and is really, really well done. Uh, you did an awesome job on that. And as I said to you, you. Uh, in our, you're welcome. And in our correspondence afterwards, as somebody who's created a lot of online CE, it's not easy. It takes a lot of time. And uh, it, it was really well done. So we'll kind of go into the expansion side and then we'll just kind of wrap it up by summarizing maybe where we see things going in the future and, and some directions that we we hope hope our profession can head and and discussions like this can can help it head. So, uh, yeah. So with that, with that uh, let's kind of start with talking a little bit more. I mean, you have a fascinating story with you. Thank you for your service, by the way. That's a 21 and a half years. My, that's my pleasure. Tr truly my honor. Yeah. Yeah. No, really, really appreciate it. And um, that that's awesome. So tell me a little bit about how, uh, how did that happen at 17 and then spending that much time um, in, in service? Yeah. You know, it, it, it's interesting. So, you know, one of the, the major, um, you know, so I was, I was a 17 year old active and high energy boy, as, as you might imagine. And so, uh, you know, that the, the real reason or one of the big reasons I actually started my military career was was, you know, I got into a little bit of trouble over the summer. And uh, <laughs> and so, you know, my mom said, hey, well, you know, you can have a miserable summer at home or you can go to boot camp. And I'm like, yeah, no way. Doesn't sound really? That's <laughs> wow. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, at that age, I wasn't thinking really about anything long term. I'm like, oh, we could go do field artillery, you know, maybe like have some fun, you know, shooting some cannons and stuff like that. And I was yeah. like, that sounds cool. So that that's really what started it. And, you know, I knew in my education journey that I was going to have a long road. I've wanted to be an orthodontist since I was 12. And so, you know, I knew it was going to be challenging, you know, financially and whatnot. And I knew my parents weren't going to be able to support me in that way through uh, throughout the entire education that was required. So that was a big part of it as well. Sure. Um, I actually never planned on staying in for, for 20 years. That kind of just happened as it went along. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's that's awesome. So and then you just it stayed in it just because you enjoyed it and it was just it fits your personality, yeah, you know. So, I, you know, I did field artillery. I was enlisted for eight years. So I was a sergeant getting ready to uh, promote to staff sergeant. And, you know, I was getting ready to go to dental school. And I was like, well, I don't want to get deployed out of dental school. That would be really uh, bad. Okay. Yep. yep. Um, but I found out that they had some programs for dentists. So at that point, I switched from field artillery over to the medical unit and have okay. done uh, the dental side of things since then. Yeah. So cool. that transition, because they had those options. Uh, made it possible for me to stay in. And then after dental school and residency, it was like, man, I've been in like 14 years, you know, and what, what, <laughs> this deep, six yeah. years, you know? Yeah. yeah. And then the 20 years hit and I just like, you know, I, I I just didn't feel like I needed to get out right then. I was just like, you know, it's fine. I mean, I enjoy what I'm doing. I enjoy networking and, and talking to the soldiers and, and hopefully, you know, mentoring them and they mentor me in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I was able to do that for another year and a half or so. And then it just, you know, things got just so busy that, that uh, I wasn't able to do that anymore. So yeah, it was, it was good. It was time. That's great. Awesome. Again, thanks again. And that, that's, that's really cool. I love stories like that. Um, we all come at it. Orthodontist, I've noticed not just in doing this and in this arena with podcasting and, and coaching and teaching, how many people I've encountered that have interesting stories, but just meeting orthodontists at, me, at different various meetings and talking to them. A lot of orthodontists have really fascinating journeys. Um, and, uh, uh, I like you did decide I wanted to be an orthodontist at twelve. I find there's a lot of us that had that had that inner burning desire from a very young age, um, and I think it's interesting uh, to see just just how much we dedicate to our profession and and outside of it. So, so one of the main things I want to get into, kind of start off on the airway topic. Um, let's do a little bit. Let me start by this. One of the biggest discrepancies we have is this whole conversation of can orthodontists or dentists do anything about obstructive sleep apnea, okay? And that tends to be just such a heavily debated, heavily discussed issue. And I want to back that up a little bit because I think that's missing a big picture. And I want to hear your thoughts on this as well. I feel like we need to, when it comes to pediatrics, and, and at this point in the conversation, I want to focus primarily on the pediatric side, although if you want to add in some of the adult side, that's fine. But relative to pediatrics, I feel like jumping right to OSA, obstructive sleep apnea, is missing the boat. And it's allowing a lot of kids to fall under the radar. And what I mean by that is obstructive sleep apnea is end-stage disease. And it is a scale, the AHI or apnea hypopnea index scale that most people out there know about, whether it's patients listening or um, laypersons or, or professionals that do this for a living, most have heard of that scale and go for a sleep study. Polysubnography is the gold standard for that. But what a lot of people don't know are the parameters, and you touched on this in your course, and, and I love that because I touch on it in my courses as well, and I think it's so important. They don't know that the parameters for pediatric, and you actually gave a little, a cool way to kind of remember it um, as you know, essentially a third, is, is basically it's a third of the adult levels for mild, moderate, and severe obstructive sleep apnea. The thing is, to qualify on the AHI scale as having an episode of apnea or hypopnea, you have to have cessation of breathing for greater than 10 seconds. 
And the pediatric nervous system is different than the adult nervous system. And the sympathetic nervous systems are very active in kiddos. And they rarely, rarely are going to have that long of a duration of cessation of breathing. Happens, but it's not as often because what happens instead? They shift in bed, they grind their teeth, they they toss and turn. And and so you have all these, they they wet the bed. So there's all these other things that happen in, in kids that don't necessarily happen in adults. So the general concept of the pediatric criteria being a third of the adults, right, in terms of the number of episodes that you need to have to qualify, makes sense. What doesn't make sense is they were, there are no data to substantiate them making that scale. It was essentially an extrapolation of the adult data. And not only will most people not do not know that, but when I talk to people who are all on this dentist and orthodontist and OSA bandwagon that we shouldn't be involved in it, they won't even debate you on it. They won't even talk to you about that. So what are your thoughts? I, why, why, are we, why are we using this scale that is not really tailored to kids and making our end-all, be-all decisions on kids? And then after that, I'll kind of ask a question about what I believe is more important, which is um, the sleep disordered breathing as a general side. So first, kind of what are your thoughts on the scale and why do we hold on to that as, as the end-all, be-all for kids, not adults, for kids? Yeah, for kids. I mean, the reason that we hold on to it is because it's the only thing that we have right now. I mm. mean, and so like when you send a kid to a sleep study, that's what they're going to send you back. They're going right. to send you the AHI. But I've found that the where you send them has a huge impact on the quality of the sleep study that you'll get. Okay. And so there's really only one sleep study center in Las Vegas that I use for my kids. Because mm -hmm. in addition to looking at that AHI, apnea, hypopnea index, they're looking for things like rears. They're looking for things and, yep. and, and documenting well the sleep positions, uh, nasal breathing versus yep. oral breathing, and all the things that are going to come into play when it comes to how this child is sleeping. Do they do, do they, they study movement too? Report. Do they happen to study movement? And again? Do they study body movement? Exactly. And, yes, oh yeah, yes, awesome. yes, yeah. exactly. All yeah. of those things that are, yeah. that, that you're going to want to know when you're assessing uh, that child's sleep as a whole. Yep. And so, you know, but some of the uh, centers that mostly see adults, if you send them a kid, they pretty much just test them against adult standards. Right. And it's like, yeah, you know, OSA or not. I mean, it's like, you know, that, right. that may have little or no prediction of how that child is actually sleeping and what they're actually experiencing. Yes. And so in a way, I mean, really, uh, this lies on the shoulders of our medical colleagues who mm -hmm. should be designing and, and, and maybe they are. I mean, and, and this is, you know, goes to another point is like, we really need to be networking more with our physician colleagues from yes. the ENTs to the sleep physicians. And, and that's been one of the most challenging things. And so mm -hmm. I think as we're able to build these bridges, I mean, I, I, I work with pediatric ENTs, um, mm -hmm. yep. uh, sleep physicians out. Yeah. All of these people, because, you know, I don't know what I don't know about what they do yep. and they don't know what they don't know about what we do. And really like, it's the marrying of the two knowledge bases. That's going to result in the improvement in these kids, yes. because you think about it, you know, anatomy definitely affects, uh, the OSA. No one's debating that anatomy affects it, right? That's why tonsils adenoids come out. Correct. That's why expansion is recommended in a number of patients when there's huge jaw size discrepancies and undersized maxillas. Yep. So if you're a physician, a sleep physician or an ENT, and you send a child, you know, that has a small upper jaw, like who do you send them to? Like the right. ENT doesn't make the jaw wider. The sleep physician doesn't make the jaw right. wider. The allergist doesn't make the jaw wider. Like we're yep. the ones that correct the underlying anatomy. Yep. And so the question really is, is we need to be networking, coming up with the new protocols because, you know, to the point of many of the authors of research and publications who are, you know, against, um, against treatment of, of OSA with expansion or whatever it may be. Yep. The reason is because we don't have those established protocols and data at the level that we're going to need to have them in order for there to be a wide scale, broad uh, adaptation and change. Yep. And so that's really what we need and where we need to, to 
focus our efforts is networking and collaborating with all of the other specialists. And that bridge between uh, dentistry and medicine needs to be, it needs to be bridged more. We, we can't continue to have them as much separation as we have. I completely agree. And I, I in, to your comment about continuing to learn and understanding what we don't know, I learned so much about reading comb beams, about understanding airway, nasal passageways, turbinate hypertrophy, sinus anatomy, uh, pharyngeal anatomy from my allergy and ENT colleagues. And once you Absolutely. sit down with them and you just, I mean, now we can do all this stuff remotely. It's not like the old days, you don't have to pack up your kit with your models and x-rays and go and sit in their office. You can hop on a Zoom call, share your screens, and I just, I would do that. And actually, when I was a cleft craniofacial orthodontist on uh, the team at the hospital near my practice, I would bring my scans and I would literally sit down with Jason Wazakis, the ENT or some of the ENT residents and just go through them and just be like, hey, let me pick your brain and what are you seeing? And I mean, they see things I never even was aware of. And maybe I know the anatomy, but they're like, oh, well, this is this. And that's the collaboration that really needs to happen. And I think because we don't get that in school, we don't, I mean, we don't learn how to communicate with the, I, I didn't, and I've been teaching and actively teaching in orthodontic and general dental residencies since I finished my own 20, almost 20 years ago. Uh, I've never seen where there's direct collaboration and where these, these residents are taught how to collaborate with ENT, sleep physicians. I just, it, and you know, not aside from the cleft craniofacial side of things where there is a team. Why is there not a team to deal with sleep? Why don't we have these you know, teams? I think honestly, you know, the biggest challenge is is that we're not used to communicating between the dental and medicine gap. And mm -hmm. so, you know, like our medical colleagues, I mean, they they are, you know, if anything, they're even busier than we are. I mean, they're mm -hmm. constantly seeing patients and they're really, really difficult to get in touch with. Yep. I mean, I reached out to a number of ENTs before like one would even agree to have uh, lunch with me. Really? It's just, you know, it's just not something that's been established and historic. And there are some great groups out there that are trying to get this collaboration started. But it's the ongoing collaboration that I think yes. is is troublesome. So, I mean, there are meetings uh, that have, you know, uh, physician and dental colleagues together uh, focused on sleep and airway health and things like that. But, I mean, it's an annual meeting or it's an every two-year meeting. I mean, we need there to be yeah. online collaboration. All these Facebook groups that we're a part of, there needs to be a great Facebook group or a great uh, online collaborative research group where, where the medical colleagues are actually getting involved or yeah. they're inviting us to, you know, to their groups. We need to have both specialties there yeah. in order to really solve this and figure out the protocols and what exactly is needed and in order to come up with the research to back up everything that we know and what we're seeing. And so mm -hmm. that that to me is the biggest limitation is that 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 it's just not an established it's not normal basically you know historically we just haven't networked with the physicians at a very close level but that's something that absolutely needs to change. Yeah, and you know where it needs to start is in our schools because you know I, I again I'm a big academia guy I continue to devote my my time and energy to it as do you, but let's call it what it is we're all under one roof or at the very worst on one campus with all of these physicians and dentists, especially in our residencies. I mean, where's the collaboration? And, and I'm calling out all the directors and, and the accreditation agencies and the AAO. Time to step up and put policies in place to get the, and, and the AMA and all of their agencies, right? Get the dental and the medical teams collaborating. Why are we separate? And it's this kind of, I've never even really thought, thought this per se, maybe subconsciously, but as just, you said that it kind of hit me. I'm thinking, wait a minute. Why is there such a disconnect? Because once you're in private practice, you're right. It, is, it isn't, it is I mean, I was on the cleft craniofacial team. 
I had my own sinus allergy issues. So I was very <laughs> overly uh, involved in the allergy department from a personal reason. So I had connections with that. So literally I had the allergist that I knew um, and started picking his brain on stuff regarding my patients. And hey, can I send you patients directly? Or when I see that these turbinates are, are inflamed and enlarged, or I see this sort of like rhinosinusitis looking thing, which again, isn't my place to diagnose, but I can certainly recognize opacities in the sinuses and in the nasal passageways. Yeah, you can make the referral. Make the referral. So I just started picking their brains, but you make a really good point. If you don't have some of those personal connections or on a, aren't on a cleft craniofacial team, not only do you not know where to start, but I think a lot of people might just be intimidated and, and might just think like, oh, Absolutely. I don't want to sound stupid. I don't want to, you know, and send something that they're like, this is not even relevant. So yeah, let's, let's, you, well, I won't put you in it. I will personally call out the, the schools out there <laughs> and the programs to say, and the AAO, the AMA, let's, ADA, let's start to get medicine and dentistry when we're in school together. I mean, at Stony Brook, where I went, my first two years, the dental and the medical are combined. You're in one, you know, we would go off afterwards right. in our technique labs and stuff, but our, all of our didactics right. were together. We were literally had the right. same teachers in the same lecture halls, same labs, same anatomy labs. So uh, what a great out way to just branch off of that and, and keep that, that line of communication open. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, because so, I was the same situation uh, for my orthodontic residency. We, we shared uh, with the medical colleagues different anatomy classes that we took. So anything that was directly related, uh, we would go over to their campus or they okay. would come over to our campus. Yep. Uh, but to your point, I mean, it should be you know, those classes talking about sleep disorder breathing should have every specialty within that category uh, at the table yep. to discuss those things. And, and let me ask you this. How much uh, sleep disorder breathing education did you get in residency? Exactly. Thank you. None. And, and you I know what I mean? All, all so it wasn't even a I conversation teach, yes. that we yeah. had. Yes. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. I mean, and so, so there, you know, now we're out here and, and we're the only ones, you know, we are dental facial orthopedists. Like most people don't even know what that is. I mean, no. oh, you're an orthodontist. Like nobody says I'm a dental facial orthopedist. Right. But the problem is we're the only ones that are. Yeah. There isn't another Thank dental you. facial orthopedist on the medical side. I mean, we're the ones that change the structure of the face and the jaws. Yeah. And if we're not being educated in our residencies on all of the relevant information about how jaw size affects not only the teeth and the jaws and the joints and, and the TMD and all that kind of stuff that comes along later, but also specifically on the airway yep. and on normal growth and what's not normal growth, how to identify it early, how to yep. intervene early, what, what treatment modalities should you do? Um, the majority of my phase one education in residency, and, and I'm not knocking my program at all. I love my program. I went to LSU, phenomenal program. I learned a ton. I am so grateful. Mm -hmm. um, and and, and I, I, you know, I don't wish I would have gone anywhere else. Uh, but when it comes to phase one treatment, I mean, mostly it was a screening clinic. And we almost, I don't know yes. that I did a phase one case in residency. I did one experience. Um, you know, yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, I did, I did expanders on phase two patients, you know, yep. when they're 12 or 13, whatnot. Yeah, but I'm sorry, know, one phase one expander. Later, yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it is not as effective, right? You don't get as many skeletal changes as the child ages and the suture matures. And so, you know, the fact that we're, you know, practicing in 2024, that wasn't that long ago. And mm. and, and we we literally have to seek out all of this education on our own. Yeah. It should be in the standard curriculum. I mean, that should be mandated. Like whether you agree with everything or not, you should be exposed to both sides of the argument yes. in your residency training program required with your medical colleagues. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. And I say this so often, uh, I say this to residents when I teach, and I say this when I give lecture, I gave a presentation just a couple of weeks ago, and and um, it was a mix of general dentists, every type of general practitioner and specialist in dentistry. And I say, and they don't realize your exact question, the vast majority of orthodontic residents get zero training in anything sleep related. They're actually 
most are getting zero training in cone beam and airway analysis on cone beam. They only typically take a cone beam if they see an impaction. They don't take it as a routine screening evaluation diagnostic tool. They don't take it to compare and superimpose images. And we'll get into that a little more in, in, in a few minutes. But they're essentially not treating phase one patients. And exactly your experience was mine at UConn. I loved UConn. I mean, I literally had Charlie Burstone teach me biomechanics. He was still alive at that point. I mean, I, you know, I, I Nanda and Flavio Ribe and there, you know, we had great people teaching us uh, the, the foundations of orthodontia. And I wouldn't be the orthodontist that I was and when I was in clinical practice if it weren't for all of that. That being said, I knew nothing about phase one. And I'm actually not faulting the school as much as the system. And, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because I, I believe, and I don't know how to fix it, it's a problem with, it actually comes down to, as many things do, money and funding and insurance. And so what happened in Connecticut was we treated, I think we call them Title 19, but they were state-funded uh, Medicaid patients are, 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 were a large percentage of our patient population. And that's the case in a lot of orthodontic residencies and dental and medical training programs around the country. But the Salzman Index, Salzman Index, which is what we use to score the case, right? Medical necessity is what they judge it by. Unless you have a full bilateral crossbite or, or unilateral, but full crossbite posteriorly or anteriorly, you don't qualify. They don't count the baby teeth. The baby teeth don't count in the score. So you essentially cannot do much phase one by definition in an orthodontic residency that has a large percentage of their patient population on state funding. So that, how do you solve this? Because what happens is you come out and you, you practice what you know and what you do, and they teach residents in these schools based on the patient population they have. So how do we break through that wall? Hey everybody, be sure to check out the doc website where you can get access to tons of great information, including free educational content, access to private one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, ADA SERP recognized CE courses and amazing patient testimonials. Just go to theorthocoach.com. That's theorthocoach.com. And now back to today's episode. You see, and that you bring up a, a huge, uh, a great point and a huge challenge. I mean, so our medical colleagues, they're used to having essentially everything covered by insurance. I mean, mm -hmm. they really don't send out many things that's not covered by their medical insurance, right? They right. send it to the ENT and that's covered, tonsils, adenoids. I mean, there might be copays. Uh, you know, deductibles to be met, things like that. But by and large, I mean, medical insurance is pretty comprehensive yep. in what it covers. And so just the fact of them making a referral now to, a, you know, a dental, uh, somebody in the dental profession that now works under dental or orthodontic insurance benefits, yep. I mean, it's going to be, a, it, it's different. That's a different system right there. Yep. I mean, in my opinion, medical insurance should be covering expansion in kids that with documented medical needs. Yep. Uh, and, that's where, and, and that's where we, you know, Yes. And that's where we need to step up to the plate and, and get the research to where they cannot deny that any longer. Yes. Have enough, you know, randomized control trials that shows like, hey, you know, when we expand, when, and this is the missing piece in a lot of the expansion literature, when there is an underlying skeletal discrepancy Thank that's you. documented and identified. And that was the thing is because when you were using the teeth to identify or to, to try and classify whether or not the jaw is is off. I mean, it's a flawed system to begin with. I mean, yep. the teeth can be in the bone, outside the bone, tipped yep. in, tipped out. Like the teeth really don't matter. They're, they're, they're in the jaws, but that's the only relationship they have to the jaw. Yep. With cone bean imaging, now that we have that, we can look at every single jaw. We can look at the width. We can look at the anatomy. We can diagnose a jaw size discrepancy without even looking at the teeth. Right. We can do that all off of the imaging that we have. 
And once the data is there to definitively support, and there's a lot of data that already supports this, but once it gets to the point where we have so much data, and this is what I think is coming, that you can say, hey, look, when there is an X amount of jaw size discrepancy, mm -hmm. your risk for sleep disorder breathing is X amount higher. Yep. Once we have that data in place with, with enough studies that it's, it's, it's irrefutable, and they're going to have to do something. And so then the question is going to be, is medical insurance going to step up and cover this? Because it's a medical condition that's treated by a dental specialist, mm -hmm. right? I mean, in a way, like for the benefit of the patients, it would almost be better if dentofacial orthopedics were its own specialty, almost its own medical specialty, mm -hmm. because then at least they could focus on shaping the bones only, and they would be, you know, a part of the medical world and yep. in their system already. But yep. that bridge between medical insurance to the orthodontic insurance or the dental insurance, I mean, that's a huge gap. And as you said, it, it comes down to money, which yes. is super duper sad because yes. these patients are literally having these uh, troubles, these struggles, they're, they're dealing with so many things that they may not have to deal with if they had the appropriate diagnosis and treatment uh, because of money. And, 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 and to me, that's just, it's just something that we, we can't stand for. We have to do everything that we can to make this better. So well said. And that's where getting into the AAO white paper in 2019 that everyone kind of clutches their pearls, you know, and, and when, when we talk about that and that's the end all be all. Well, the authors who are very respected people, but a lot of them, whether it was medicine, there were that physicians in there as well as, as orthodontists, a lot of them are in academia. And so they're only able to analyze what they see and they're just simply not exposed. I knew none of this till I got in private practice and six, seven year old kids start walking in my office and all of a sudden I'm not, they're on private pay and I'm not like, oh, sorry, you don't qualify. We've got to send you to get some teeth pulled because of your crowding. Um, I can't do anything about it now and I'll watch you for the next four or five years and we'll do braces, pull four teeth and do braces when you're an adolescent. That's not what it is in the real world of clinical practice. You see these kids and you look at them and this was even before I even understood airway and breathing, but I realized, wait a minute, these teeth are super crowded, but they're crowded because their arches are narrow. They don't have macrodontia. They don't have huge teeth here. And, and there's studies by McNamara and others that an article in Orthotown that uh, part one of that, that highlighted those studies that rarely ever, if ever, is it truly a size of uh, an issue of tooth size being too large, right? It happens, but it's, it's isolated. It is almost always when you see dental crowding significantly in these young kids, a size of jaw, a sign of jaw size being too small. Okay. So do we just start pulling teeth on these patients like we've been taught? And so I think it's hard for the schools to know how to even begin to change, especially if the patients can't pay for that treatment. And then you add in the rift, as you highlighted, between the medical profession and the dental profession and how many pediatricians are looking at malocclusion, understand malocclusion. And that gets into a big frustration I have with the AAO white paper is they they said that the pediatrician, the physician in pediatric sleep disorder, they call it OSA, another, another issue, which I'll come more to in a second. They focus on the OSA side, not the sleep disorder breathing side. Uh, but when they talk about OSA and that the pediatrician is supposed to be the quarterback, I mean, Honestly, Jeremy, you got four kiddos. Like you've been to plenty of pediatricians' offices. I have two uh, of my own. The pediatricians are simply not looking at how these kids are breathing and sleeping and how the face is growing. And frankly, that should be our job. Like you said, as a craniofacial and, and dentofacial specialist, why is the AAO punting effectively and saying that the pediatrician physician needs to be the quarterback and only if they recommend certain treatment for OSA, ignoring sleep disordered breathing and all the other comorbidities and associated issues, which we'll talk, talk more about in a few minutes, 
why do you think that they are taking that stance? And then I'll just finish that by saying, contrast that with the ADA stance, who released a position statement on this in 2017, who I think did a much better job in kind of how they highlighted it, because now they didn't say, um, they called it sleep-related breathing disorders. So to be clear for everybody listening, there's there's OSA, which is obstructive sleep apnea, but then there's sleep-related breathing disorders um, or sleep-disordered breathing, and those are kind of used synonymously. The ADA used sleep-related breathing disorders. Uh, the American Academy of Otorhinolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery uses sleep-disordered breathing typically, but again, ADA defined it as encompassing snoring, upper airway resistance uh, syndrome, and obstructive sleep apnea fall under the auspices of the sleep-related breathing disorders are SRBDs. And I just want to read you what the ADA said. They said three points. Number one, dentists are encouraged to screen patients for SRBD and refer as needed to the appropriate physicians for proper diagnosis. And just a little interlude there, agreed, right? We know we cannot diagnose and we Absolutely. are not in the, in the train to, or uh, it is not under our purview to make diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea. We can diagnose Absolutely. them having symptoms of sleep disordered breathing, right? And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes, but we can't make a diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea. In children, right. screening through history, this is point two, screening through history and clinical examination may identify signs and symptoms of deficient growth and development or other risk factors that may lead to airway issues. And their third point was, if risk of SRBD is determined, intervention through medical dental referral or evidence-based treatment may be appropriate to help the SRBD and or develop an optimal physiologic airway and breathing pattern. And I like that so much more than the way the AAO approached it, where the AAO essentially was saying, you know, their, their statement was, it's strongly recommended that the orthodontist perform a clinical risk assessment for OSA and refer at-risk patients to the appropriate physician for definitive diagnosis of OSA. Fine, right? Pretty similar. But the, here's the problem. Right. Subsequently, orthodontists may be involved in treatment of pediatric OSA if the treating physician refers the patient back to the orthodontist to address the underlying skeletal discrepancy thought to contribute to the child's OSA. I read that and I'm thinking, so I need the physician, the pediatrician in this case with kids to tell me what expander to use, how to use it, when to use. I mean, that's what they're essentially saying. I, I don't get it. I mean, uh, help me. What, what am I missing with this? Well, I mean, so, so here's the thing. I mean, I, I don't know that. I mean, so yes, they're, they're recommending we send them out and then we, and then we send them back for the treatment of the skeletal discrepancy. But I mean, my question would be who diagnoses a skeletal discrepancy? Right. That's what essentially I'm saying. Yeah, we do. Is, right, exactly. yeah that's what we do. So, right. we, so we, exactly we, that's right. within our purview is to diagnose right. skeletal discrepancies. In right. fact, we're the only um, specialty that I know of that looks at jaw sizes and can diagnose skeletal discrepancy. Now, right. if you take um, sleep disorder breathing out of the picture completely for a minute, right? And you mm -hmm. just look at, you know, jaw size discrepancies and what those can lead to in, in, in patients going long-term. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's everything from, you know, from TMJ, broken down teeth, uh, you know, abfractions. I mean, all these things are definitively correlated in our research to sure. know that when there is an underlying jaw size discrepancy, there's problems that happen dentally. So, yep. so as a, you know, we don't need a physician to tell us that there's a jaw size discrepancy or that correcting that uh, discrepancy will not benefit the patient in some way. I mean, we have research to support that. Mm -hmm. So the question becomes, 
when you're when you're recommending expansion. So are you are you recommending expansion for the OSA or are we recommending expansion for what we know, the Great jaw point. sizes and, and the potential problems that come along? Because in, in my practice, that's how I discuss this with patients. I just say, hey, Same. look, you know, this is what I'm seeing. Yep. This is where your jaws are. Yep. Now, you know, some people have jaw size discrepancies their whole life. All right. And they never have major problems. Their teeth right. don't break down. They sleep fine. Yep. I said, you know, and that and that could be you. Yep. But, you know, this is, you know, a point in, you know, where you can decide what you want to do. I mean, one option is you can go to the physician, they could do a sleep study or, or they can run other tests to see what they're seeing. And you can go to the ENT, they can, they can scope you, they can look around that way. Uh, but at the end of the day, I mean, the, the jaw size discrepancy is, is it, ours to diagnose yes. and ours to treat. And so, yes. so absolutely, if a child is, is, if their only concern at that moment is sleep, then no, I'm not going to recommend expansion. I'm going to say, Hey, why don't you go get more information about sleep? maybe get a sleep study, maybe talk to an ENT. And then once you have that information, well, now you can come back and, and be more informed, make a more informed decision about whether you want to correct that jaw size discrepancy. Mm -hmm. Because I, I do agree with many of the, I guess, opponents of, of uh, early intervention that we shouldn't be uh, correcting jaw size discrepancies in the absence of any type of symptoms, just to correct it, if that makes sense. Meaning so that if there's room for the teeth and, and the child's yeah. If, if there's room for the teeth, if the child seems to be sleeping just fine, maybe yep. they have a, a, you know, one, two, three, four millimeter jaw size discrepancy, yep. nothing major. Yep. Like if they're not having problems, no, I'm not going to jump in and oh, expand yeah, absolutely. them. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Just, just, yeah. just because they're right. Because I see a discrepancy, right? right? It has to be correlated with, you know, with the experience and the symptoms that they're having. Yep. And that's where I think that some practitioners do get a bad rap because there are you know, in my opinion, a few bad apples out there who yes. basically recommend, yeah, expand for everything. Just expand, everything. expand, expand, right. expand. expand. Right. And, and right. they use those scare tactics, right? And, yep. But it's a very, very select few practitioners who do that. Yep. And because they do that, now we have a host and a myriad of other academics, you know, kind of attacking yes. this uh, research as a whole because of the bad actors. And, yep. and we have to get past that. I mean, I was reading that statement from the 2023 AAO, uh, that article that was written. And yeah. it, just, it, was, it was almost disgusting. I'm like, you know, you, you're, you're hammering <laughs> such a small subset of practitioners yes. out there to make your point. I mean, you've got to get past that. You've got to realize that, yes, in every single specialty, in medicine, in dentistry, there are going to be bad actors that right. misrepresent the truth. And it's not just about airway, yep. right? It's about crowns. It's about film. I mean, everything. I mean, that everything. happens. Yeah, disease. You can go down the list. Yep. Right. Yeah. And if you're focusing on that rather than collaborating and figuring out what is it, what are the gaps in research and, yep. and you know, and what are you doing to address it? Right. I mean, we're, we're trying our best to, you know, aggregate data yes. to take before and after comb beams, you know, to have what's going to be needed, you know, correlate that with the pediatric sleep questionnaires. Like we're trying to gather as much data as we possibly can. Yep. And, you know, comb beams have really only been in, in, in use uh, at a more popular level in the last, you know, 10 years or so. Yeah, there I was, was going to say about exactly. I got mine in 2014. Residence. Yeah. And, and it was, right, the, yeah, we got ours, I think in 2017. Yep. And so it's like, it hasn't been around long enough to yeah. really provide the evidence that, that we eventually, I believe will have, yep. but that's the first step is to stop. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like I could, we could go out there and we could say, oh my gosh, like these guys are terrible. They just, you know, they just want to defend their whole years of practice and how they did things. That's why they're saying those things. But again, that's a small percentage of the people out there with a the voice. I mean, most of us do have our patients' best interests at heart. We're all seeking for the same thing, which, which is truth, right? Yep. And eventually the more information we have, the closer we get to that truth. So, I mean, the name calling the back and forth, I mean, it's just, to me, it's just so counterproductive and, and it shifts the focus of the arguments away from what's really important, which is understanding the sleep disorder breathing and understanding how we can help, you know, these, these kids and these you know, adults who, who suffer with that.
Well said. And, and I think that uh, the more we can have discussions like you and I are having right now and, and just start to have these conversations, um, I've been calling for a while for uh, there needs to be that gap between well, you exposed another, as we got talking, we kind of came up with another gap between medicine and dentistry as a whole. So there's that gap, but we also have to bridge the gap just within the dental profession between clinical practice and academia. It has gotten too wide and too deep. And if you look back in literature from the sixties and seventies and eighties, there was constant collaboration between the schools and the private practice orthodontist, right? It was almost hard to read one of the great papers that we, were, that we have all read through in our residencies when you're not seeing uh, collaboration from data, even if it's just the data or they just took the patients from the private practice. I feel like now that's rare. And I'm actually working on trying to do some research with the residents at NSU where I teach to try to do everything I can to, to, to bridge that gap. But I feel like certain people within academia have dug their heels in and said, this is the way this profession goes. This is how, I mean, I've even heard of master's level research um, advisors saying that they refuse to do any research that involves comb beam because it's not the standard of care in orthodontics and the standard of care is cephalometrics and that's what we need to use. I mean, really? I mean, are we, re so that is such a divide from what we see in private practice and how much more information we can gather. And I also, I think it's interesting. One of the things from that article you referenced, which was a special article um, I have here, and it one of the things it said in the beginning, it's an opinion article, which I think is also very important, right? This is an opinion article. This isn't an article that, that was a study or research. It's an opinion article. And it says, I was, as a result of the latest controversy, talking about treating especially younger kids, right? Younger kids with, with uh, these, these skeletal issues uh, and sleep-related problems. But in this article, they constantly reference, once again, OSA, right? They always stick to OSA. They don't get into sleep-related breathing disorders, which the ADA does a better job of, or sleep-disordered breathing and all the comorbidities. They just talk about OSA says, as a result of this latest controversy, I was asked to put into perspective the current state of OSA and early orthodontic intervention. So somebody went to him and it's in the AJODO. So somebody involved with that publication or they or whatever went to him and asked him to write this article, knowing his stance, because he had published another article in 2019, um, which let his, his, his opinion clearly be known on this. So I think it's interesting what's happening behind the scenes. And I find that a lot of the literature that we want to talk about that gets out, that gets out there talking about everything we're talking about, the general dental and the pediatric dental populations get it and they really see it and understand it. The orthodontic population is really stepping back on this and they're almost putting forth again, literature and opinion statements that are clearly against the orthodontist having any tie to the airway side of things. Uh, I, I read recently it was, um, came across in, in why I don't like doing a lot of these things, kind of debating back and forth in Facebook groups or on blog posts. But with Kevin O'Brien and I, it was kind of a contentious back and forth about I, I challenged Kevin to to have a debate. And I intentionally was a little flip in my response. And it didn't, again, that's not me and my personality in, in tone, in person, but that's one of the problems in writing, right? Things kind of come across a little different. So I just kind of could put a quick response up saying uh, he had written I'm getting the weeds on it, but basically it was an article um, that he had put on the blog and it was an article looking at, it was 1,219 different studies um, that um, they had done um, a systematic review and looked at and distilled it down to five. And of those five, it was like a couple hundred patients. And the end result was that watchful waiting uh, and expansion are no different in terms of the outcome for OSA. So it was a 2002 article. Again, the point isn't right now to go into the, the merits of the article, but it was one person's opinion and their findings, right? They selected and you can have all your 
parameters put up to eliminate bias and all that, but you're still whittling down over 1200 articles to five and someone has to make those decisions. And so fine, but it was put out. And because Kevin has, has a pretty loud microphone on this as, as like, see, look, there's, this is just proof that, that nothing you do with expansion is going to help airway. And that is not what needs to be said right now. It needs to be said like, Hey, let's discuss this. What do you think about this? What are some of the problems with this? And I wanted to have that discussion with him. And so I challenged him to debate it with me on a, I was that I made the doc community, which is a, a, a face private Facebook group that I'd started, but it was going to be a Facebook live. So it's not like I'd edit it. I mean, it is what it is. Like whoever wanted to watch it, it'd be in real time. It wouldn't be me tipping the scale. He wanted to have it. He then came back to me and said, no, I won't do it verbally. It has to be in writing and you need to submit a 500 word summary and we'll put it on my blog site. And so it went and it just devolved. And it's why I said at the end, I'm like, this is the whole reason why I wanted to have a conversation because when you go back and forth and writing in this stuff, it just devolves so quickly. Why can't we get some of these people who are very vociferous? And, and I will throw the invitation to anybody out there. I will gladly have you on the podcast or do a Facebook live and have an academic discussion with you about this. Uh, exactly what Jeremy and I are talking about right now. Cause I feel if we don't, I don't know how we bridge the gap. Have you heard about the doc community on Facebook? It's where you can get access to more great content, including case reviews, select clips from CE courses and podcasts, literature reviews, and exclusive promotions and discounts off doc educational materials. Just go to Facebook and search for The Doc Community and submit a request to join the group. And now back to the podcast. Yeah, you know, it, you know it's interesting. And, and that's one of the big challenges is that, you know, there's a lot of people out there with a voice. But but the challenge is, I mean, most of the people with a voice, they sort of stay in their lane and, and, and they kind of... Um, shape the conversation to, mm -hmm. to either what, you know, to what they believe, which I mean, rightly so, I guess. I mean, that's, that's kind of the point of it, right? He's got a blog. I mean, and, and, and I don't, I don't find him as being uh, disingenuous at all. I, I, I think that he gives an honest interpretation of the data that he comes across, but this exposes really a bigger challenge. And we talked about this from the beginning is that we all have as orthodontists, you know, going back to what you said is that, you know, the pediatric dentists and, and, and the dentists, uh, general dentists, they have, you know, much more, uh, they're a little bit more open to mm -hmm. some of these things yeah. and some of the research that's coming out. I think a big part of that is that, you know, as, as specialists, we're trained a specific way. So, so you and I, we have all the same, you know, research background training that any other orthodontist has, mm -hmm. but in addition, we we've sought out this education on this separate topic. Yeah. Right. And so, so we're not quite as, um, you know, there's nothing we're beholden to, if that makes sense. We don't yes. have this you know, foundational history of like, you know, this is the the research that I need to be looking at only. And, and I, you know, I can't look at any new research. Right. right. So, so, you know, yes, as orthodontists, I think in general, we are very, very critical of any, you know, technique, procedure, anything like that, um, that, that goes against, you know, quote unquote, the status quo or the norm. Yeah. And yeah. this has happened multiple times in our profession, you know, dating, you know, back from functional appliances to extraction, it's happened over and over and over again. And I do think that those oppo uh, opposing voices are important, right? Because they do point out um, you know, they, they do point out things that, that I may not see, right. Yes. I mean, I may take a course, see something, but I may not, you know, see something else from another. And so it's important to have that dialogue. One of the things that I did after I created my course was I, I granted it to, uh, two orthodontists that I know that are very, um, very, you know, I, I wouldn't call it anti-airway, anti, -airway, anti mm -hmm. uh, but, but kind of, you know what I mean? Like very yeah. like phase two only focus, like, you know, just wait till they're older and fix it when their teeth are all grown in, you know? And I said, Hey, as you go through this, like, please like give me feedback. I want to know what I'm saying yep. that, that doesn't come across to you the right way. 
And that was one of the most valuable things I could have done because mm -hmm. there were questions that they had and they're just not questions that I would have even thought of. Interesting. Uh, but it was great because it gave me the opportunity to go back to the research that we have and yep. either A, identify like, hey, here's some new studies that you might not be aware of. And like, you know, send them their way and say, hey, check this out. This is like kind of directly addresses your question. Yep. Or it helped me in some ways be like, wow, this really is a gap in our law, uh, in our literature. We need to have more people focused on this. But going back to something you said earlier, which I think was really, really important, you mentioned that there's a gap between the collaboration between academic programs and private practice orthodontists. Mm -hmm. And one question I have for you is when you were in orthodontic practice, mm -hmm. how many times were you solicited from academic programs to ask if you would help provide data, information, comb beam, before and after? Like, How many times were you asked for that information? Never. And I taught it then. Yeah. Yeah, me neither, right? Never. And so it's like, we're the people that have all this data, right? Yeah. We're taking the comb beams before and after. We're progressive. We're getting the latest and the greatest. Yeah. The technology at the orthodontic programs is typically 5, 10, 15 years behind, yeah. right? Because they want to see all these studies. So you might have yeah. one program have a comb beam, you know, in 2002 or something like that. But, you know, the majority don't. And so there's always this gap. And, and yep. they're not asking us for the information that we have, yep. which is, is going to be super important, in my opinion, because we have the data, but we don't have the time that they do yes. to complete these studies. Or the and residents so that, that we do to complete these studies. Exactly. <laughs> yes. I mean, so they have residents, yeah. they have time, you know, they yep. have, you know, to your point, if they could make that collaboration with the, with the medical colleagues much easier than we yep. could. And so I think that that's going to be key. Like once our residencies and our academic programs start reaching out and using the vast amount of data that so many of us have, yep. uh, you know, we have it anyway, right? I mean, all it has to do is be analyzed. And, and you and I, like I say, we 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 don't um, we we can't do what we do in private practice and have a full-time academic career, if that makes sense. Or at least that's very very challenging. That's not going yep. to become the norm, right? Yep. We went into private practice because that's what we enjoy doing. Yep. We love, you know, changing people's lives. We love uh, shaping smiles and faces. I mean, that's what we love. We don't love uh, digging through the data and, and analyzing it, right? But right. there are people out there who do. Yep. And those are the people we need to be collaborating with to, to move this forward. Completely agree. And that's why I've made it my goal at NSU. Um, and their directors have been great. Um, Sheila and Pram have been awesome in helping me work to work with some of the first year residents now to start to get some of my data on thousands of, of comb beams pre and post treatment and starting to look at when you do early expansion on these patients and you are having impacts that on the adenoids and tonsils and lymphoid tissue and nasal passageways and then working with ENTs and allergists and how you're changing airway in these patients and changing their lives. Because like you said, I've got the data right? They don't. So it's going to, I think it's going to have to come from a collaboration between private practice and academia, because back to the initial point we were making with the way money is and insurance is, it's just, it's not going to happen anytime soon that a bunch of orthodontic residencies out there all of a sudden start treating a ton of phase one and treating a bunch of six, no. seven, five, yeah. six, seven, eight year old kids. It's just not, it's just not set up that way. The mechanics are just not built. The system is not built that way. It's a, I'd, I'd love to think that maybe in 20, 25 years that that we could make some of those changes. Um, I'm not saying I'm overly optimistic. I just think it'd be nice if we could try for that, but it's going to take a while. And in the interim, what can we do? All right. Because just saying it, it can't be done to me isn't acceptable. We have to figure out a solution. And I think that solution is private practice orthodontists. Those of you listening to this, when, you know, especially young docs, if you're recently out of your residency, track your cases. If you're taking comb beams, look at them critically, save it, and then work with residencies in your area where you went and start to think of ways to create research projects to be able to study this to bridge that gap it's one of my big missions is to try to bridge that gap between academia and private practice because i hear it so often from residents 
I'm not saying residents I teach, just in general residents who I coach or talk to me or I know, and they'll at meetings and they'll say, yeah, I'm basically just doing this to get out and learn how to really do orthodontics. And I'm like, <laughs> man, I mean, I, I'm sure you've heard it too. And it, it just, it, it, it saddens me. It frustrates me. It's like, you know, man, what, it's a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of sacrifice to go through all this, just to feel like you're doing it to get a degree to hang on the wall and some letters after your name so that you can then go figure it out the right way. I mean, if most patients hear that, know that, they've got to be like, wait, what? I mean, they think we're learning in the residency and in our training how to go out and do this stuff, not not learning it and trying to figure it out as we go out there, which getting to the next point of kind of expansion is I know why you created your courses or say one of the reasons why, and it's one of the reasons why I created my courses and in the way I approach early phase one expansion, because you wanted to expose people to a way that we're not really taught in school to do it. So as we kind of transition into the expand from the airway side to the expansion side of things, how, and there's so much more about the airway. And honestly, if you, we can maybe set up a time to come for you to come back down the road later this year or something and really dive more into nose breathing and the importance of it and mouth breathing, because just touching on it for the first, you know, 40 minutes here of our talk really isn't enough uh, to, 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 to give it its due. But looking at the expansion side, what prompted you to want to teach this? As I said, I've built these courses. It's not easy. It's a tremendous time commitment and, and energy commitment and resource commitment, especially having a busy practice and a family with, with four children. Um, what prompted you, motivated you to want to do it? And what was your goal in building the courses uh, to try to achieve? So, so here's here's what it boils down to for me. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer that question with, with a little bit of history here. So if you would have told me that I would be practicing orthodontics in 2024, the way that I am practicing orthodontics in 2024, I would not have believed you. Mm -hmm. Like I would have been like, I would have just called you crazy. Like coming yeah. out of residency, I never, ever, ever would have envisioned uh, practicing the way that I'm practicing, both with, you know, with comb beam, with, you know, diagnosing jaw size discrepancies with, yep. you know, I have a piezotome in my office. Like I would have never, <laughs> ever, ever guessed that that would ever be a part of the right. equation. But, you know, with, with me, I mean, my journey is, you know, I, I've always loved learning. I've always been somebody who yep. asks questions, yep. you know, and as a kid, like I, I was like annoying to teachers sometimes because I would ask them so many questions because I yep. wanted to learn. Yep. Like I wanted to figure out how the world works and how things tick. They're like, so what, Jer got out of what, Jeremy, <laughs> Jeremy, uh, put exactly. your hand down, right? <laughs> exactly. Yep, I was exactly. the same way. Yep. But, but it's, you know, it's, it's just been part of who I am. And so, you know, I yeah, get out of great. residency and, and, you know, I join a private practice and I, you know, I start asking asking a lot of questions there. And I see a yeah. lot of new things and I start becoming educated. And, and for me in my journey, I mean, really it started from an airway standpoint, you know, back when I heard Jeff Rouse speak. Mm -hmm. So I went yep. to uh, you know, the, the airway prosthodontist course that he, that he offers there. And it just opened my eyes to a lot of things that I mm -hmm. didn't have any exposure to. Like to your point before, I just, I didn't know anything about sleep disorder breathing. Neither yep. did I think anything that we would do from a dental or orthodontic side would have any consequence on that whatsoever. It just sure. wasn't something that was on my radar. Nope. But as soon as it became on my radar, then I was like, wow, well, there's a lot of other stuff that I don't know. And so like, it was just a, a journey over, over a number of years, like from one course to the next course, to the next course, to the next course, just learning the physiology, learning the, the ideology of some of these problems that are happening and learning, you know, what treatment modalities actually do mm -hmm. um, start to start to improve these situations and start to resolve these issues that, that patients are having. Yep. So for me, the information that I tried to present in that course was, was the combination of about 10 different courses okay. and about 40 or $50,000 in tuition and travel. 
Wow. And, and and I knew that, you know, most orthodontists are not going to do that. They're not going to go to 10 different courses and, and pay, you know, a lot of money to get that education. Yep. So my uh, only and biggest intention with this course was to get this information out to as many orthodontists and dental practitioners as possible, mm -hmm. because until we all start, you know, having the same sort of knowledge and database to work from, you know, the, the conversations that we have are not going to be able to be productive. Great. And so, you know, although there's no way I can, I can boil all that information down into one course, but that was my goal. And that's why, in addition to talking about the non-surgical skeletal expansion, because I know there's a lot of interest in that topic, you know, MARPs, MSCs, all those things are, you know, kind of a hot topic in orthodontics right now. And that's yep. important. And there's a lot of great educators out there that talk about that, but I wanted to tie it back to what we are familiar with as orthodontists, meaning, you know, the Iowa growth study, the jaw size yep. discrepancies, like all that stuff that we've been <laughs> taught to treat before. I wanted to try and bridge that information. Like here, here is what we've been taught. Now here is what I've learned since being taught that. And this <laughs> yep. is why, and to be able, you know, and you can't really do that in, in a written article or in a conversation on a podcast, you have to be able to show, demonstrate research before and after photos, superimpositions yep. in order to actually affect change in somebody's mind, they have to see it, I think, especially orthodontists. And that's why throughout my course, one of the most important things was that I'm, I show the cases before and after in 3D superimposition. Yep. And so they can see exactly what the bones look like before and exactly what the bones look like afterwards. And, and what treatment was rendered? Was it a bonded RPE? Was it a, was it a Hyrax? Was it a, was it a Marpy? Mm -hmm. uh, was it an Alpha? I mean, like, what was it? And, and what did that result in? And, and that data is going to lead us to be able to have more productive conversations because until we start separating out the types of expansion that are happening yes. uh, and, and, and correlating that to the improvements in airway breathing and changing, yep. like we're not going to have the research that we need to move this forward. And so like, that's like step one. And that's, you know, back to our earlier point, this data is there. Like so many practitioners have this exact same data I do. They just haven't looked at it in okay. the same yep. way that I have. I mean, yep. it takes time to do a 3D superimposition and to see what the jaws look like before and after. Yep. And most of us aren't going to do that, but this is why I wanted to create a course where we can start talking about this and encourage other orthodontists. I think when we post cases online, that should become the new standard of care. Like, yes, tell us what you did, show us the photos, mm -hmm. but also <clears throat> do a 3D superimposition and show us what actually happened to the bones. Uh, because before 3D, I mean, all we had was, you know, a Ceph tracing and, and, and a Pano. And, and yes, I'm not saying that there's not good information you can glean from that, mm -hmm. but it's also very subjective. I mean, where you draw the lines, oh, I mean, you know, it, completely. It, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's not, I it's always not challenge every orthodontist or resident out there. You tell me you haven't <laughs> shaded a, 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 an angle a little bit one way or the other to kind of get that desired sort of result for a case conference when you were presenting, you know, I mean, everybody, exactly. It's like, well, that so, yeah, you know, the, the apex of that yeah. incisor probably is a little bit more labial than it, you know, I mean, it's just, it's, there's so much fudge factor in that. Um, and I'm not saying that it was right. nefarious. It's just, you, you, you literally right. can't. It, it just happens. It could be honest mistakes. You know what I mean? Completely. I mean, and, and yeah. that's the thing, like with 3D superimposition, I've made honest mistakes. Like I've gone back and looked at cases that I superimposed and then I go back again and I'm, you know, I learn more. I've taken yep. a lot of radiology courses as well, networking with people who do that side of it more. And, uh, and yeah, mistakes can be made, but they're much less likely uh, with 3D superimposition because you have so many data points that you can superimpose on. Yep. Um, of course, with anything in growing patients, it's a lot more challenging to separate out, you know, the growth from your treatment that. modality. Yes, it is a lot harder. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But yeah. certainly for non-growing patients, I mean, it's a pretty slam dunk to know what we're doing and, and to be able to extrapolate the data and the improvement in the symptoms. 
Uh, and that's what needs to be done. That's the missing uh, link, in my opinion. Yep, I agree. And and what I've actually started doing a lot of mine, because the superimpositions get so messy, since I tend to focus on the younger patient side of things, um, is taking slices and now started to uh, overlap them and ch change the translucency on one to kind of like let you almost see the superimposition of it, have reference points um, on scale, because it's just when you start putting the colors in 3D superimposition software, and I hopefully they'll start to get a little better, but when a growing patient, even if you try to use the reference points we're taught for superimposition, it can get, it can get a little messy. But very relevant and very important. And actually through your courses, taking that side of it, uh, it's motivated me to take some of from my courses and add in, um, you had good feedback from me on, on what you took of my courses. And that is that, you know, having, I have a ton of before and afters and slices and, and measurements and showing that, but getting some of those superimpositions, even if they aren't the most clear, but just to put those up and say, look, you can see the general trend we're going in here and then back it up with the numbers and the overlays to say, hey, look, like this is what, what we're seeing. So what is, Marpy? Uh, just in general, just so everyone's on the same page with this. Um, how does it differ differ from traditional expansion? Um, how do you, and I guess the other main thing is kind of how do you determine, and you do a good job of discussing this in the course, but I, I want to have a discussion because I'm kind of on the opposite and where my focus is really doing like minimally, minimally invasive braces and wires, young pay, young kids, uh, six, seven, eight years old. And, and your focus tends to be more a little bit older, even where you get to where that suture starts to interdigitate um, and you start to get more interlocking and, and need more force to get an orthopedic change. So to start on that, where do you see that line in practice when you see a patient come in? How are you making that determination? Uh, and when and why are you feeling like you might need to go to a skeletal anchorage, as you'll explain with Marpy versus an, a more traditional approach? I do way more just normal, traditional, like bonded RPE type expanders than I do Marpies, right? Mm -hmm. And so yep. to your point, when the child is young and they don't need the type of, of force that an orthopedic expander uh, applies, mm -hmm. then, then I'm not using it, right? I mean, like yep. I'm not putting these in seven, uh, you know, eight-year-olds routinely just because I can, mm -hmm. right? I mean, there's a lot of literature and we know when we expand in that age group, we do get orthopedic change. Mm -hmm. So to, to go back and answer your first crest, uh, question, Marpy stands for Micro Implant Assisted Rapid Palatal Expander. Mm -hmm. Okay. And all that basically means is it's an expander kind of just looks like all the expanders have ever looked, but they add micro implants that connect the expander to the bone itself. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it increases uh, anchorage. And, mm -hmm. you know, all of us know what anchorage is, right? Anchors, how we anchored it. But for those listening that may not know what that is, all right, anchorage basically means you have to attach to the jaw in some way. So traditional expanders attach to the jaw via the teeth, mm -hmm. right? So the teeth have roots. The roots have connections and the roots sit within the bone. So when you push on the teeth, the teeth push the bone and the bone gets wider, mm -hmm. right? Depending on the age of the patient and depending on the force. And so when you go back and you look at four, five, six, seven-year-olds, the sutures, the connection of the top jaw to, you know, both halves of the top jaw mm -hmm. essentially is, is very patent. It doesn't require a lot of force or anchorage mm -hmm. in order to get those bones to move, mm -hmm. right? And then the older we get, uh, and the less anchorage that we have, mm -hmm. uh, the more we tend to see the teeth moving instead of the bone. So if you look at most of the orthodontic research, if you look at your typical seven-year-old uh, and, and you put uh, an expander on them, a traditional like bonded RPE type expander, you may get 60% bone movement and 40% teeth movement on mm -hmm. average in general, right? Depending on how many teeth they have. And, and this is the challenge is that there is no like one size fits all. Everyone has a different uh, size and shape to their teeth, to their mm -hmm. roots. Their bone densities are different. Mm -hmm. There's so much complexity that goes into 
what anchorage you have and what resistance you have. Mm -hmm. And so at any moment when we're trying to make changes to the jaws, we're using our best educated guess possible yeah, I was say guess. to yeah. know mm -hmm. how much, exactly. It's our best yep. guess. Yep. How much anchorage do we need yep. in order to change the jaws? Yep. And since I've started to do Marpies, I mean, it, it, it's a very challenging decision to make. Now, here's what's encouraging to me is, you know, when we expand, we know that there's, if, if you want to simplify it down to, to the most simple way to think about this, mm -hmm. there's really three types of expansion, right? So the one type of expansion is, is the teeth moving and not the bone, right? So mm -hmm. if the bone stays where it is and the teeth move out, you know, we call that dental tipping. All right. And that mm -hmm. is a form of expansion. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, that, that I'm not saying that that's bad. That does a lot for us. When you tip the teeth, you can get uh, more room for the teeth. The arch is wider. Mm -hmm. There's more room for the tongue. It might help with speech or myofunctional uh, goals. So there's a lot of good that can happen by just tipping the teeth, mm -hmm. right? Especially so the if the teeth are tipped lingually to begin with. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Especially, especially when they're tipped when on the inside, right? right. Tipping them just to big... make them upright. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So there's a lot of benefit. And, and many of our patients we treat by tipping the teeth. And, and yep. there's lots of ways you can tip the teeth. You yep. can tip them with braces, aligners. I mean, you know, you, you name it almost. You, you put a low enough force on there, you're going to tip the teeth. Yep. So the second type of expansion is, you know, dental alveolar bending, which for, for lack of a better description means that the teeth are within the bone. And mm -hmm. as the teeth move out, the bone moves out with mm -hmm. it, right? The teeth right around the bone, it moves out with it, right? So that's another type of expansion. Mm -hmm. And that is skeletal in nature because the bone is actually moving. Mm -hmm. But the third type, and, and in my opinion, again, and this, and we, we can't really um, say this with definity yet because we don't have enough research out there to definitively say this is the end all be all. But my opinion is that the orthopedic expansion, so that's the third type, meaning both bones separate. And mm -hmm. now we have a gap and that new gap is filled in with bone. Mm -hmm. To me, it makes the most sense that that orthopedic change is going to result in the most benefit for the patients long-term. Mm -hmm. And when we're measuring and looking at jaw size discrepancies, although yes, the dental tipping and the dental alveolar tipping can certainly help the relationship of the teeth and make more room for the tongue. Mm -hmm. The orthopedic expansion is required in order to have a, a a measurable effect on the nasal passageway itself. Now, you know, then you can get the weeds of how do you get orthopedic expansion, but orthopedic expansion really for me is, is the, is the main goal that we're trying to accomplish in making, you know, in making the types of improvements to get the, the teeth lined up in the middle of the bone yep. and the airway as, as, as large as possible and the easiest to breathe. When we get orthopedic expansion, we also get expansion of everything that's connected to those two bones, mm -hmm. right? So the nasal cavity, they share the same bone. So the floor of the nasal cavity is going to widen. And then also the tonsillar pillars, those come off of the back of the jawbone, right? Mm -hmm. So as that jawbone widens, the tonsillar pillars widen. And well, mm -hmm. now all of a sudden there's more room in the posterior uh, as well. And so it's like, for me, this is, this is in a sense, not a no brainer, but I mean, it, it's very um, easy to understand from, from a practical standpoint, right? You make the jaw wider, you make more room in the back of the throat where the vast majority of sleep disorder breathing and yep. apneas are happening. Your yep. tongue's falling back, you know, all those different things. So, so that, that part is simple to understand. But the problem is we need to be able to better understand the exact changes that are needed and what we can expect from an anatomical standpoint. And we also need better diagnostic and screening tools to know that, yes, although most apneic and, and sleep disorder breathing patients have collapse at the uh, either the posterior or the or the superior base of the tongue uh, in the back of the throat, mm -hmm. but there's other types of, of sleep disorder breathing Absolutely. problems as well. Yep. Yep. And, and that's what, you know, that's where the, the delicacy comes, right? I mean, how, how do you decide, you know, how much you're going to expand, when you're going to expand, when you're not going to expand. Mm -hmm. I've had patients come to my office that were wanting expansion because their child had sleep disorder breathing. But when I look at their x-rays, I mean, they'd already had tonsils, adenoids removed. Mm -hmm. That didn't help at all. 
their jaw size is normal. If not, mm -hmm. their upper jaw is a little bit wider. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not going to expand that kid. I'm not going to have one in the residency. Yeah, just had one with the residency. We literally just right. had a patient and I referred them back to the well, allergist she's following up with. She's not taking her flowness like she needs to. That's part of the problem. But she's clearly someone who it's nothing. And that's again back to a point you made a while back. You don't just look at these patients and say, oh, sleep disorder, breathing, problems, can't breathe well through the nose. Let's expand. No, you do your initial diagnosis and treatment planning on every single patient. You start looking at them from the moment they walk in the room, like uh, Rail Bernstein was saying in the previous episode, uh, who was on talking about looking at the face, understanding the overall presenting symptoms of this patient. Hopefully you have a cone beam. You can start to evaluate nasal passageway patency, uh, pharyngeal patency, tongue space, looking at those coronal slices, as you referenced, you know, uh, bases of the bone, maxilla versus mandible, inclination of the teeth in a buccolingual inclination, all of these things. And I almost feel like it's this irony where for so many years, I feel like we've tried to, and I, I don't mean this to come out wrong, but excuse the expression, kind of dumb down orthodontics, right? Kind of almost make it like, our TCs can present the treatment plan. Like, let's just look at these kids. And, you know, we throw aligners on and let the Invisalign techs do the, the setups. And it's kind of like we've tried to find all these ways to, to make it so much easier. I'm not opposed to anything that's going to improve efficiency unless you're neglecting your initial diagnosis and treatment planning of that patient. Because can you have an, do you have to place every single bracket or can you do that with a 3D type program or train a clinician to help with that? Again, state laws being what they are, obviously there's certain regulations, but just philosophically speaking, of course you can delegate certain things. Right. Can you teach someone to do certain things on ClinCheck so you don't have to do every ClinCheck all the time? Of course there are ways to do that. But you're the one that went, you not meaning you, you meaning us, we're the ones that went to school for all this time and all these years. And what is the one thing that sets us apart is our, is our ability to diagnose and understand what we're looking at. And I think that's exactly right. what I'm hearing you say is you see this patient come in and there are all these parameters. Some are educated guesses, but they are educated guesses, as you said. Um, you know, clearly when we're trying to determine the sutural maturation of a six-year-old, we know they're not a 16-year-old unless it was a one in a however many millions of outliers, right? But I think I, I saw a study, there's like a 71-year-old that has doesn't have fusion of her of her suture in one of the studies I recently recently read that she's you know, the oldest person ever detected without fusion of the mid-palatal suture. So again, we're not talking about the outliers, but you have to make an educated guess on this. I think it's important our profession keeps trying to hone that in a little more. And I, I want to kind of, as we wrap up in a little bit, I want to talk to you a little bit more about that, where we see it going. But we make those educated decisions. And then we have a responsibility to build and construct a treatment plan. And if we just look at every person who comes in complaining of an airway type problem and say they need expansion, then we are not doing a service to our patients or to our profession. Conversely, if we totally put our head in the sand and say, oh, I can't deal with airway, that's a physician's problem, and don't look at the underlying structural etiology that could be contributing to this, I think we're also doing a big disservice. So that's where I get very confused with people when they see a transverse deficiency and we conflate this, oh yeah, well, you're, you're treating that to solve the airway problem. No, I'm treating this to solve the structural problem in the patient's mouth and growth and development. Yes. And yes. then it might help their airway problem as well, because as you said, and we know, yeah, and there's so much literature out there showing that narrow arches 
have, and you could say, is it causative or is a correlation? But ultimately we know that patients with narrow arches have a higher frequency of obstructive sleep apnea, sleep disordered breathing and, and occlusion of the, of the airway. People with broader arches have the opposite. So have greater patency. It's multifactorial. There's a lot of other things mixed in. But when you look at those patients and you see, let's say a 12 year old, cause I think we're pretty clear that at say six, seven, you're not throwing you know, mini plates in or uh, mini screws in and, right. and, and throwing the right. in at, at 17, I think it's pretty clear. You're not putting braces and wires and just going to, you know, on a, on a patient who's got a severe maxillary deficiency and hoping you're going to get orthopedic change of the suture. How are you determining where to draw that line though, in the transition between the modalities? Hey, Doc Podcast listeners, the biggest compliment you can give us is to share the show with friends and family. That way others can benefit from all the great content Doc has to offer. And now back to today's episode. Well, I mean, we start with the most conservative, right? I mean, so if, unless there's some reason to believe that that child is not going to expand, we're going to start with the conservative expander. We're not going to put anything within the uh, within the jaws. Mm -hmm. So once they get a little bit older, well, now we have information, right? So maybe we expanded when they're seven or so. Well, now we can measure their jaws when they're 12 or 13 and see, like, is there a jaw width discrepancy remaining? Is there an AP front to back discrepancy remaining? And if there is, how likely is traditional expansion versus you know skeletal expansion going to be to correct those problems? Now, one of the gaps in data that we also have, but but it's closing fast, is you know how much jaw change can you have with skeletal based expansion versus you know traditional type expansion? Mm -hmm. and, and the and the results that have come in so far are very very promising. There was a, a multitude of studies published in 2023 showing the skeletal changes that can occur with mini implant assisted expansion mm -hmm. and specifically maxillary protraction versus traditional expansion and maxillary protraction. Mm -hmm. And so in my, in my uh, mind, what I do is I look at the patient, I see how big of a discrepancy is there still, how much do we want to try and move these jaws? And when you're if saying, just interrupt for a second, when you're saying how big a discrepancy, you're talking about looking at a coronal slice, essentially of a cone beam and, and measuring correct. the actual width. Okay. Yep. Yep. So I'll take the coronal slice and I'll measure from the middle of the basal bone of the maxilla, essentially. Okay. So, so that's, a, that's where I want those teeth to be upright eventually is right in the middle. Yep. So if the middle of the two uh, top jaw bones is here and the middle of the two bottom jaw, bo uh, jaw bones is here, well, mm -hmm. I want to get the top jaw at least as wide, and if you look at the literature, three to five millimeters wider mm -hmm. than the lower jaw. If that's a five plus millimeter discrepancy, there's no practical way I'm going to get that without mini implants, mm -hmm. all right? And so back in the day before we had that, we would just expand as much as we could until the teeth got so flared out that it was just ridiculous, yeah. let the bone heal and then bring them back and try to put the case back together. But with Marpy, and you have those TAD anchors, and in my experience, and what was recently published by Juan Moon and his team with, with his expander, specifically the MSE, is that they're showing about 90% skeletal expansion with good MSE or Marpy type treatment. Meaning that if you have solid anchors in the bone and you expand and you hold it there for a period of a number of months, I mean, typically with, with teenagers, at least three months. I was maybe say, is, this to five, in is this in teenagers? The, exactly. That's, well, yeah, studies. and his his cohort group was actually a little bit older. They were nineteen plus or minus a few years. On part six of my course, we talk about it uh, a little bit and the future of Marpies and where that's going. But yeah, great study. And then so they took the the cone beam before they took one immediately uh, after the expander was removed after yep. that holding period, yep. and then they took one again at the end of treatment, whatever it was, a year or so later. Okay. And and in between that time, from where you know where the expander was taken off 
And the end of treatment, I mean, it was like 10, 12% reduction. Yeah, I remember the 10, 12% in, reduction in, that you showed. Yeah, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. which is which is unheard of. I mean, yeah. like I say, before it was 40, 50%. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. just unheard. So, so if I need the bones to move that much in order to be aligned, 100% of the time, I'm going to be recommending a skeletal type expander with the use of, of, of mini implants. And additionally, if I need the upper jaw to come forward mm-hmm. more, mm-hmm. then I'm going to be more likely to want to anchor that to the top jaw. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, with protraction, if you're only connected to the teeth, you know, what's going to give eventually is all those teeth are going to tip forward. Mm-hmm. And and that's exactly what I don't want. I don't, I don't want the teeth more forward. It doesn't look good. It makes it harder to get the teeth to fit together. Yep. If there's a jaw discrepancy, I want the top jaw forward. So I'm always going to go to Marpy if I need to get the top jaw more forward. And then the last point on that is when we change the bones, it changes not only in a horizontal direction, but in a vertical and AP direction, as you know, meaning that the more we expand Mm -hmm. just because of a function of the resistance of the maxilla, it's Mm -hmm. always going to come more forward and it's always going to come down. And so if I have a patient that smiles and they don't show like any of their teeth like this, Mm -hmm. well, and we look at the anatomy, we see, okay, well, that jaw is set too high up. I'm going to be more likely to expand skeletally so that mm-hmm. the jaw, in addition to getting that width, will come down and forward. Yep. And using the micro implants with the Marpies allows me to be able to get more change of the jaw itself and essentially correct the underlying discrepancies of their smile and bite more skeletally mm-hmm. than dentally. Because at the end of the day, the better the bones are, the easier it is to correct the teeth. We know that, right? Please. That's why yep. we used to, you know, we still we still send patients for jaw surgery in the presence of large jaw size discrepancies. It's just that with Marpy treatment, you just took a huge subset of patients that used to require surgery, mm-hmm. which now you can treat skeletally, but non-surgically and give them a stable and aesthetic result that otherwise used to not be possible. Mm-hmm. And do you feel you can get, because some of the arguments against Marpy, especially if you get into a piezotome and you're talking about, I mean, a lot of orthodontists, I mean, I've had a challenge trying to convince orthodontists that you can place full braces on six, seven-year-olds because it's so ingrained, like you can't move baby teeth and you know, all of those other dogmas that are out there. I can't imagine the challenge you face in, I don't want to say trying to convince, because that's even with me, it's not a convince, it's just educate them like, hey, you can do this, but hey, to try to educate them to say, hey, you can take a scalpel, do a midline cut on the palate. Yeah, anesthetize the patient's whole palate, have the time in their busy day to do this. Um, and again, not even talking right now about whether it works or not, just the logistics of implementing it into a busy practice and, and then yeah. be placing the, the mini screws and everything coordinating with the time in the lab and the building of these custom Marpia type appliances. So what has been the feedback you've received from people as far as the logistics of actually implementing this in their practice versus that practitioner that says, yeah, Jeremy, um, my surgeon, my surgeon buddy down the road, like they, they can knock out a uh, Sarpy in 45 minutes. So in, in office, um, uh, what is the change? Why, why would you say, or what is your answer to the question of why it would be preferable for an orthodontist to do the former being the Marpy with all those, those steps in office versus the latter, which would be the Sarpy with the surgeon? Absolutely. Yeah. You bring up so many good points. And like I say, we're definitely going to have to do another one of these because there's so much. You and I can go on. We were definitely like the talking. Like I love talking to you and picking your brain. You're such a thinker. And I just love bouncing ideas back. But yeah, sorry, go ahead. 
Well, yeah, well, so so basically, here's how I think about it. So one, it's a process, right? You're not going to go out and take one course and then buy a piezotome and do these procedures comfortably. At least I, I would suggest that you don't do that. Yeah, yeah. So I do educate <laughs> as much as possible on that procedure uh, in the office because I want them to know um, why we do it and what mm -hmm. happens and what are the potential complications, right? If mm -hmm. nothing else, I, I don't want them to get in over their head, right? It was a long time. I was doing Marpies for years before I ever even considered uh, doing a piezotome osteotomy on a patient. And I took mm -hmm. three courses personally, uh, one of which was a cadaver skull course mm -hmm. um, before I actually uh, purchased a piezotome and started using it. So I was very, very, very hesitant to, to get into this. And, and the reason that I did is, is essentially access to care. And so, you know, the other thing about it is, is that do you, have you talked to a surgeon or periodontist, um, like your average surgeon or periodontist, would you say that they do piezotome osteotomies? I honestly like don't know midline if, cuts. If the ones I work yeah, with, yeah, like 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 almost almost none of them do. Mm -hmm. they, they they weren't trained about that in residency. Okay. Um, surgeons don't even like the piezotome; they feel like it's too slow. And periodontists they use the piezotome all the time, but they've never been taught. I mean, like all, skeletal expansion up to this point surgically was always the surgeon. Right. And as you know, to something else that you said, you know, they they can just go get a sarpy. Well, that's true. Uh, just so everybody knows the difference between the two, though, the result that you get is going to be very very different. When you do a SARPI, in addition to splitting the midline, which they do in, 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 in quite a more traumatic and barbaric way than the piezotome does mm -hmm. and an expander does, they do lateral cuts. So they're cutting from the floor mm -hmm. of the nasal cavity all the way above the roots of the teeth to underneath the zygoma. Mm -hmm. So in addition to this midline split, they're basically taking the nose out of the picture. But essentially, they're expanding only the bone of the maxilla and mm -hmm. nothing higher than the level of the floor of the nasal cavity. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about like, if you want to get additional benefit of having the whole entire nasal cavity open, you really don't want these cuts on the side because mm -hmm. yes, those cuts might make it easier to expand that patient mm -hmm. uh, from a jaw standpoint, make the jaw wider. Yep. It takes away any benefit that you get with moving the actual nasal bone okay. out yep. and providing that increase in the airway. Yep. So uh, you're getting the tongue space, it, maybe let's call right. it equally, we could debate, but right. let's say we're getting exactly. equal tongue space, but you're not sure. getting nasal volume change to the same extent exactly. because you're exactly. essentially putting a break, a fracture line, like in concrete, you're essentially putting a fracture line to resist those forces getting to the nasal cavity uh, in the, the SARPI as opposed to in the MARPI where you're going to leave the, the maxillary bone intact, uh, make a midline cup, but leave the max, the not nothing apical to the, the roots of the maxillary teeth, which allows those forces to be transmitted to the nasal cavity. Absolutely correct. Yeah. And so, and then also not to mention, you know, like it, it's a much more invasive procedure. Um, although the risks are different, in my opinion, the risks are higher with a more invasive surgical procedure versus, mm -hmm. you know, a, a, a more refined, not refined, but, but a, uh, a just a less invasive uh, type surgical procedure. Uh, and so, you know, when you're weighing the risk versus reward, I mean, when you factor in the cost, the risk, I mean, there's anesthesia risk, right? Mm -hmm. uh, when we're doing any type of piezotome osteotomy, uh, they're done under local anesthesia. I mean, we're not, mm -hmm. we're not using any sort of, uh, you know, anything as far as uh, increasing the risk from the anesthesia standpoint. I mean, it's just normal local uh, dental numbing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, there's just a, a magnitude of different in the amount of risk that you expose the patient to. Uh, and you po provide, uh, I, I feel like a, a lot more benefit in, in providing, you know, the nasal breathing increase uh, in addition to correcting the bones. I mean, a mm -hmm. lot of the, on my adult patients that see me, I mean, they'll come in and they'll say like my whole entire life, I haven't been able to breathe through my nose. Like I'm constantly congested. Mm -hmm. Like I breathe in and I just, I just can't get air in. And, you know, and then you expand these patients and you watch the nasal volume uh, widen and increase. Mm -hmm. And you talk to your patients like, wow, I mean, how has it been breathing through your nose? It's like, 
I never knew, I've never experienced this. I've never been able to breathe through my nose my whole entire life. So to your initial question about how do you convince, you know, quote unquote, orthodontist to do this, you know, two answers. So one, I would not convince any orthodontist who doesn't want to do a, a type of surgical procedure or numbing to do it. You don't have to, yeah. right? There are practitioners who can learn. I mean, your, your periodontist, your surgeon can go to my course or someone else's course. They can learn these procedures and mm -hmm. techniques and they can do them for you. Um, I actually, uh, I, I network with uh, periodontists in my town and many of the cases who need other type of perio treatment anyway, I'll refer the osteotomy uh, and delivery portion of that uh, expander to them mm -hmm. because it's not like something I inherently love doing. Like that's not yeah. like the best part of my day. I'm not like going to work and being like, man, I want to see how many, you know, osteotomies I can do today. You right. know what I mean? A busy practice. I, I mean, that's not easy exactly. to, to put that yeah. in. Sure. Yeah. And there's lots of ways you can make the systems better. And certainly, I mean, the first one, the first one I did, geez, it probably took like three hours. I mean, it was ridiculous. Mm -hmm. uh, but now, I mean, my total chair time at a, you know, an eight tad Marpy delivery with the piezotome, like the time that I'm I'm actually sitting at the chair doing something is probably about 30 minutes, mm -hmm. right? That's and so, you know, you go there, you know, you come back. Yeah, it, it doesn't take that long yep. once you get the systems down and you're comfortable with the procedure, just like anything else that we do. Yep. But that being said, you don't have to do it. But here's the thing. If, if you're not educated about what is possible, how do I convince docs to do this? I show them the data. Yeah. I show them the before and after comb beams and yep. they can see for themselves yep. the changes that are happening. Yep. So if another orthodontist came on your podcast and said, hey, I'm getting these exact changes with Invisalign. You know what I'd be doing? I'd be, you know, if I saw that, you know, bones changing, all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. with Invisalign, I'll, you bet I would be the first person to sign up right. for that course and learn how in the world they're doing that. But as you know, that, that that's not possible, right? Mm -hmm. And so the way that we uh, convince people to do this essentially, or convince people of the worth of looking into this is showing them the results that they otherwise could not get. Yeah. And then once they see the potential and the possibility, well, now they at least understand this is something that I need to look into because none of the tools I have in my toolbox would allow me to get the results that you're showing. So, so that's the key in my opinion. And that's exactly how I feel about my approach on the other end of the spectrum, using braces and wires for slow expansion at these, in these younger kids, six, seven years old, being able to go in and get a change, show the results show. And as you said, how many patients did I, have I seen over the years? And we've talked about this. I know you've seen it too. It uses a different expansion protocol in phase one, but, um, where that say to you, and, and these are patients back to our original point, kind of to tie it all in who may never go for a, a PSG for have polysomnography done, may never want to, may never even realize the extent of their underlying breathing problems, may not and probably wouldn't not show, out a, show up on an AHI index and be diagnosed with OSA, but they say to you, I can breathe through my nose. I never was able to breathe through my nose. Or the parents say, my child's a, sign, a sound sleeper all of us. Like we, hey, everyone, no one wanted to stay in the room with him when we would travel for baseball or whatever it was because or we go on vacation because... You know, we'd get a separate room because because the you know we take turns who would sleep in the room with him because he kept everyone up because of snoring. Now he's a silent sleeper. And I don't care what you look at as far as some article, as I said, getting kind of back to what we were saying before that talks about whether expansion helps OSA versus watchful waiting. When you have a parent, or in your case, you're talking about a patient, right? That says, This has changed my child's life, or a patient says, This has changed my life. What you have done has changed my life. And you're performing evidence-based treatment, meaning you're doing things that are shown in evidence and you can show before and afters, ideally with 3Ds and imaging to show what you've done. I feel like that's the standard of care. That's the gold standard we should all be trying to attain. And moreover, I think that where our profession needs to start to evolve 
is almost subspecialties within orthodontics in a certain way. And I don't mean we need degrees to subspecialize. I just mean I might not want to do, like orthodontist A might not want to do much early treatment. I might not like treating six, seven-year-olds. Again, your question, how many, I mean, how many kids under the age of seven has the, has the average orthodontic resident graduating treated ever in their entire dental and orthodontic career? I ask residents all the right. time. Typically, you can count it on one hand. It's five or fewer. Sometimes you get, they did a GPR or something, so maybe they have some more exposure, but very few. So a lot of people just aren't that comfortable treating super young kids, just like a lot of people aren't that comfortable anesthetizing a palate on a patient that are in orthodontics because they haven't done it that much. So that's okay. And I think if we start to look at one another and say, Jeremy, hey, you know what? You take the MSC. Maybe you, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not saying that you do, but maybe you don't like using aligners as much, right? So I'm gonna, I, you know, send your ad adult aligners. Maybe you just don't really love those interdisciplinary adult aligner cases, working with Prosto. And, you know, and you're like, you know what, Mike, you take those because I really, it's just, you know, I just don't enjoy those as much. And then orthodontist C over here says, you know, I love treating little kiddos, like five, six, seven-year-old kiddos, and I'm really doing some great things. Well, great. Why don't, so, but we seem to be so opposed to that. It's like, we need to be able to do every single procedure on every single patient. And when orthodontia just was that, you know, where you literally were just kind of treating teens and, and it was just straightforward sort of teenage orthodontics was what it was. Maybe there was more of a place for that. But what do you think about us starting to, I would take a bit of an ego check for a lot of us, right? And we would have to work together with our colleagues uh -huh. in town to say, I don't do that. But Dr. Manuela, he's great with that. And he can do that. And, and I don't know if it, maybe it's wishful thinking on my part, but I think it would be such, we would be such a stronger profession if we could do that. No, I, I agree completely. And, and it is, I mean, we're, we're put in, in sometimes a difficult situation because we do, we're the specialists and we're, we're kind of in, in a lot of ways, the terminal specialist, right? Yeah, For a lot yeah, of these different great. conditions well that said. are happening. And so, yeah. So, if, so if, if, if a patient comes to us and we don't feel like we're best suited to treat them, that puts us in a very, very difficult situation. Right. And, and to be honest with you, a lot of the education that I have sought out was because early on in my career, I was in that situation. Yeah. And I had patients come in and I'm like, well, I mean, I have these tools in my tool belt, but I, I don't really have the tool I think that I need that your kid needs, or I, mm -hmm. I don't do that, you know? Another one was, you know, TMD, right? TMJD, right? I mean, having patients with right, job sure. pumps, yep. we'd get those referrals all the time. Yep. And then early in my career, like I just, you know, I would send them on and thankfully, you know, I have prosthodontists and I have other, you know, dental colleagues that, that deal with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it would be hard. Like if an orthodontist in my town was doing a ton of great TMD treatment and someone gets referred to me to TMD in an ideal situation, Absolutely. Yes. I would send that patient to them. Mm -hmm. um, but again, there's always going to be things that we're comfortable or not comfortable doing. We either have to learn and become comfortable doing those procedures, or we need to find the best people available if we don't like doing them and make those referrals. And so, you know, that, that has to be like number one, if we, if we sit there and fight in our offices, doing procedures that we hate, that we're not good at, yep. um, no one's going to win. You're going to be miserable at work and the patient's not going to get the best result that they could. So you've either got to get the education to do it well, or you've got to send it to somebody who is. Yep. And I think that's where a lot of sort of the, the mockery comes from of, of looking at say what I do with, with younger kids or what you do with, with Marby's and say, can't do that. Or, you know, th th there's no place for that or, you know, scrutinizing it, not in a constructive way, but in a destructive way. I think a lot of it just comes from being defensive that they don't maybe want to do it. And instead of just saying like, that's okay if you don't want to do it. Um, but let's not hold back those who do and who are changing lives and doing amazing things with patients uh, as you are so passionate about doing as I'm so passionate about doing and teaching it and educating people, just be open-minded and always scrutinize the data. Always look, have some, make sure they're showing you results and can back up what they're saying. And 
But if someone's doing something to help the patients, just because the institutions haven't pumped out a ton of literature showing it, I mean, change always comes from the fringe, pushing that envelope, whether it's medicine or dentistry. I mean, Hippocrates, how many years ago said uh, all disease comes from the gut, right? So we've known right. for how long that that there was this gut relationship, but medicine to this day is saying, oh, there's not enough evidence to show that whether it's Alzheimer's or some of these other conditions, uh, type two diabetes, that they come from certain um, gut bacteria or or alterations in that. So I think it's really important for us to, to kind of look at these things and understand, I mean, Engel, what was it in 07? His quote was all of the various of all the various causes of malocclusion, mouth breathing is the most potent. Edward Engel, right? Like most people don't realize <laughs> that like there's so much out there in our profession that that points to the validity of of what a lot of us are doing and seeing. And and academia, sadly, in in the real life clinical world of private practice are just not working together enough. So maybe if, if anything can come from this, not only to hopefully people check your course out and and see what you prepared and created, which is awesome and expand their reality a little bit as far as what can be done and what's possible. But but maybe we can just really start to further that discussion of of, of bridging that gap. Um, I mean, because really, how many residents graduate do a MARPI like you're doing it and understand it or use a piezotome? Like you said, I mean, how often are these things happening in residency? And to ask people to just learn this stuff on the fly, it's not everyone's going to have your drive, your dedication, your your inquisitivity where you want to learn this. Ask. And it's a big ask. And and so there's some out there, but, but that doesn't benefit benefit the patients that we're serving enough. Um, so I really think, yeah, I think it, it'd be great if we can start getting our, our residency programs to start working with our private. I mean, you'd be such an asset to, you know, you're already working with UNLV. I mean, if you start to work with some of these schools and they use your data and do these studies, that's what needs to happen to just get that message out there. So uh, I really appreciate what you're doing. And um, yeah, anything you want to, you want to add on that? Well, no, I mean, honestly, I just I just appreciate what you're doing in, in furthering the, the education. I loved in your course how you show the before and after everything. Right. I mean, and that's <laughs> and that's one of the things that is so lacking. And, and one of the things that drives me nuts more than anything about a course is when somebody says something and, and then there's no way to back that up. Right. Mm -hmm. They're not showing you what you would need to see in order to you know validate what they're saying. And so having those before and after comb beams, it's like, okay, well, I can see for myself, like mm -hmm. what's happening and I can understand, you know, what you're telling me is indeed, you know, what I'm seeing on those mm -hmm. images. And so, yeah, I mean, and that, you know, like that, that's, that's, again, that has to become our standard for, mm -hmm. for, for communicating and lecturing with one another. We have to be open and honest about the data that we have. We have to show it. Right. Show the it. good, the bad and the ugly. Yep. I mean, show it. There's a lot yep. of stuff in my course that that's the ugly. Right. I mean, yep. I, you know, when things didn't go as good as I thought or I wanted to. But it's important because until we know and understand that we're just going to be believing that we're doing things that we're really not. Yep. And, and at the end, we're all seeking toward truth. There is only one truth, yep. you know, and, and our version of the truth is 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 our experience and our education and everything that we've had up to this point. Yep. But as we continue to work together, we get more and more close to the actual truth. Yep. Um, which, you know, which, which again is, is the constant thing that we're pursuing. So yeah, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate uh, everything that you're doing uh, to help further uh, our profession and uh, hopefully open the eyes of many to, to help them uh, know what they don't know and, and really be able to seek out and, and learn what they need to do uh, to get us to the, the highest level of, of practice as orthodontist as possible.
You know, it's my pleasure. And thank you so much for coming on and for your passion, dedication, enthusiasm, energy. I think a lot of people are listening to this and are like, how does he have the time to have done all that he's done? I know that was a lot of what I was thinking as I was seeing how comprehensive and excellent your course content is and knowing the practice you have, the family you have. So kudos to you and, and keep asking those questions and pushing that envelope. And I promise to do the same and I think more discussions like this. And I mean it sometime. Let, let's have let's let's keep in touch and have you back on so we can maybe dig a little deeper into the into the weeds and get, get a little more granular on some of this stuff that we were talking about more superficially today. For sure. Would love to. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jeremy. Wish you the best and uh, appreciate having you on. Great talking to you. Thanks, Mike. All right. Take care. Thank you for watching this episode of the Doc Podcast. Be sure to visit theorthocoach.com to get access to ADA SERP recognized CE courses or to schedule a private one-on-one -on -one coaching session with me. And remember to join the Doc community on Facebook for more great content designed to help you succeed both personally and professionally. Just go to Facebook, search for the Doc community, and request admission into the group. You can also find Doc on Instagram at at the ortho coach. And always remember, you have been blessed with the ability to do amazing things.